This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 166, The Skies. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. The Bible speaks of three heavens, the one with birds and clouds, the one with the sun, moon, and stars, and the one where God dwells. We will touch them all this week. We'll discuss Psalm 8 and how we may have our telescopes pointed in the wrong direction, Carl Sagan's idea of God and how woefully short it falls, one of the best arguments against the six-day creation and my argument against that, and how making the most of your time on earth can cause you to miss the only voyage that matters. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Psalm 8, for the choir director on the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, sometimes in the cartoons or other bits of silliness, you may see someone looking into a telescope from the wrong direction. And instead of making distant objects seem much, much bigger, The effect is to have the nearby object seem much, much smaller and further away. I don't really think that's the way telescopes work. But it is sometimes the way our vision works, at least as far as Psalm 8 goes. I think oftentimes we look at Psalm 8 and we consider the tininess of human beings in contrast to the gigantic nature of the creation as a whole. When pictures started coming back from our outer space telescopes of how small we are in the big picture of things, it's natural to view ourselves as tiny and even insignificant. And I'm telling you, that's the work of the devil. The devil wants you to appear insignificant in your own eyes because he knows that you are anything but insignificant in the eyes of God. We are looking at space the wrong way. It's not that we are this tiny blip on this tiny globe in this small galaxy in the infiniteness of space. The point in Psalm 8 is that there is, in fact, the infiniteness of space. There is all of this creation everywhere. And the only important thing in it is you. This is not how meager, how insignificant human beings are. This is how great human beings are. You are the only important part of the entire creation. That is how magnificent human beings are. To say nothing of the fact that we are great enough for God to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. The Hebrew writer cites Psalm 8 in chapter 2 of the epistle, at least parts of it, starting in verse number 6. But one is testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. 
And then at the middle of verse number eight, he says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left, that is God, left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's not a contradiction. That is a commentary on degree. In principle, in concept, ever since Genesis chapter 1 and 2, human beings have been left in charge of the universe, every aspect of it. Now, clearly, in the early days, we were not in position to exercise control over every aspect of land, certainly not the sea, and conquering the skies was beyond our imagination. Now we're starting to dip our toe into such things, starting to exercise a little bit more control. But the more control we exercise over the world, the more we realize that we are not truly subjecting the universe to ourselves. In principle, yes, we are in charge. But in reality, no. But it's not our physical limitations or our mental limitations, ultimately, that are keeping us from being what God wants us to be. Ultimately, it's sin. Notice as the writer picks up in verse number nine, but we do see him, Jesus, that is, who was made for a little while lower than angels like we are. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does that have to do with creation? The author explains it in verse number 10. For it was fitting for him, God, the Father, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You wonder if human beings are not glorious enough to occupy the space God made for them? Well, we're not, but Jesus fills the gaps in for us. Jesus elevates us to the throne of earth. We become what God has always intended for us to be. We couldn't do this on our own. We couldn't do this with science. We couldn't do this with technology. Our greatest efforts only showed our own limitations. This is why ultimately Psalm 8 is, yes, to a certain degree, a hymn of praise to human beings, but ultimately as should be the case with all praise of human beings. The praise goes to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what I've been reading. If the younger generation hasn't ever heard of Carl Sagan, just imagine Neil deGrasse Tyson from a previous generation. Carl Sagan was a man who became famous with his TV show Cosmos on PBS, loudly proclaiming how marvelous the universe was and how impossible it was that a divine being could possibly have made any of it, let alone all of it. When they made a movie out of Carl Sagan's novel, Contact, I was drawn to it. I tend to like sci-fi movies, at least I did at the time, and I really quite enjoyed it. And it moved me to seek out the book and read it. If you haven't seen the film or read the book, basically it goes like this. Aliens reach out to human beings. They find out that there's intelligent life on Earth. They reach out and they send plans for this machine. And that's what they call it. It's the machine. Nobody knows what it is or what it does. We decide to build it. Jodie Foster's character in the film gets into the machine. And the machine transports her all over the universe showing one evidence after another of intelligent life, successful life, building in her this sense of awe and amazement 
how big and yet how small the universe is and what our place in it might be. Unfortunately, she's not able to prove any of it. The recording devices don't work. All she has is testimony to what she saw, hours and hours of personal experience that was actually accomplished on Earth, at least, in a fraction of a second. And so the hardcore scientist, the atheist, is forced to have everybody just kind of take her word based on faith. The book adds an extra twist, though, which I found especially compelling. And it's been 20 plus years since I read the book, so I can't give you a whole lot of details on it. But I do remember this, that at the end, the people who are examining what little evidence there was of this trip find an anomaly. They find a pattern in the universe that is so remarkable and so consistent and so utterly, completely impossible as to compel people who are looking at it to believe that there is, in fact, at least at some level, some kind of intelligence behind the order of the universe. I did not expect a novel written by an avowed atheist to present that kind of conclusion. And I'm not in a position to comment on the faith or lack thereof of Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan. Perhaps that's how he viewed God, though. Perhaps this is a compromise. It's very similar to the watchmaker philosophy that has been very prevalent for many, many years. If you don't know about the watchmaker, it works like this. God is a watchmaker, and he's making a watch. And he has a design for the watch, and he has a plan for the watch, and a purpose for the watch, and he builds the watch, and he puts it all together and finishes it, and winds it up and starts it, and the watch starts working. And then after that, he's done. His work is complete. He just kind of lets the watch do its thing. And he has no more regard for that watch than Mr. Rolex would have for one of his creations. That's the way a lot of people look at God. And it's a very convenient way to look at God because it accepts the, in my mind, undeniable principles of creation, and yet absolves us of any obligation. There are no duties placed upon us. God is not requiring us to do this, that, or the other. It basically just ignores the Bible in short. That kind of concept may or may not have been good enough for Carl Sagan, but it's not good enough for me, and it shouldn't be good enough for you either. We serve a God who is not simply putting us in place and letting us go. We serve a God who is loving, a God who is interactive, a God who participates in our lives on levels that we cannot possibly imagine. Yes, he gives us challenges for our minds, but it's not just that. He challenges our character. He calls upon us to evolve, if you will, beyond our base nature, beyond our instincts. He calls us to character traits like humility, malleability, gratitude, and perhaps summed up better than any other place in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse number four. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith apply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities of yours are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe your average atheist might not have a particular problem with things like knowledge 
or brotherly kindness or even love. But when we see, especially here at the end, this knowledge ultimately is knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge is knowledge of the plan of God. And we see that all of these character traits are designed specifically to bring us into a spiritual, a nurturing, an eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Atheists are going to run screaming from that idea. That's not what they want, but that's what God wants for us. God is calling us to make ourselves better, to make ourselves different, to make ourselves more like He is. Our vision of God should focus on His plan for us, lifting us up out of this earthly dominion into a greater place, a greater space, a space already occupied by righteous beings throughout history, occupied by the Father and the Son and the Spirit already, that we can occupy as well. We can also become partakers of the divine nature. But we're not going to do that simply by getting smart. We're going to do that, if we do it at all, by listening to God and allowing Him to have His way with us. This is what I've been hearing. It takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds for sunlight to reach planet Earth. The speed of light is at the absolute core of Einsteinian physics. It is the C in E equals MC squared. And C stands for constant. That creates a problem for young Earth creationists such as myself, who believe that the Earth was created in six literal calendar days, 24-hour days, some eight to 10,000 years ago. Because some of the stars that we have detected now with deep space observation are so far away that their light should not have reached us. If something is 100,000 light years away, that implies that it took 100,000 of our years for the light to get from there to here. That means that the Earth must have been created, or at least the star must have been created, 100,000 plus years ago. There have been various efforts by creationists to get around this. Of course, the non-creationists have an easy way to get around this. They don't believe in the six-day creation anyway, and the Bible is just a myth. Well, I don't believe that the Bible is a myth. And what's more, I don't believe that the current philosophy, the current scientific take on light and the speed of light is sufficient for me to scrap my understanding of the Bible as being God's word. And if that sounds anti-science, I apologize. I'm not anti-science by any means, but I do hasten to add here that it's only been fairly recently that we discovered that light travels at all. It seems rather arrogant of us to assume now with 100 plus years of experience, we know exactly how light travels and what's more, how light has always traveled. One of the explanations offered is that maybe light is not traveling at a constant speed. Maybe it is slowing down. Maybe it was at a faster speed previously. Well, how would that work? I don't know how that would work. And as best I can tell, most of the scientists who suggest such things don't know how that would work. The Bible's not a science textbook. The Bible's not trying to explain to us how starlight got to where we are or how long it took to get here. The easiest explanation, and I think probably the most likely explanation, is that God created the world so that it could be seen, whether we're talking about plants or animals or stars. If God created stars on day four, is it not possible that he could have put them in the sky in such a way as to enable Adam and Eve to see them on day six, 
Well, the Bible doesn't say that's what happened. No, it doesn't. But realize also the Bible wasn't written for a 21st century audience. Clearly, the Bible indicates that the stars were given to human beings as part of God's message. Dr. Henry Morris, the famous creation scientist, was fond of speculating that perhaps there was a much more specific message, long since lost, given to us in the stars. That God was actually giving us lessons in the messages of the stars. Messages that were corrupted by subsequent civilizations who turned them into myths and that sort of thing. I guess one of these days, maybe we'll find out. But we know, at least in a general sense, that stars were given to human beings so that they would know, so that we would know, about the power of God. The book of Job is probably the best example of this. Eliphaz, Job's friend, mentions in Job 22 and verse 12, Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars. How high are they? Clearly, his point is that the distance, the obvious distance between us and the stars was intended to give us some kind of concept of how high God is. If God dwells with the stars, figuratively speaking, of course, that should give us an indication of how much greater God is than we are. God himself weighs in in Job 38 and verse number 31 and following. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? This is speaking not to God's power specifically, but more to his order, that he set everything in place as it is. The reason that Orion is always in the sky the way it is, when it is, the way it progresses across the sky for eight months and disappears for four months, at least in the northern hemisphere, this is because God designed it that way. And the order that is seen in a starry sky, the order that is seen in the veins of a leaf or whatever other measurement you want to look at, all of this is a testimony to how systemic, how orderly the world around us is. And despite whatever protestations we may get from the atheistic community, order necessarily implies planning. It implies intelligence. You don't shake a box of Legos and come out with the Empire State Building. And you don't blow up a primal atom and create human beings with thumbs and circulatory systems and brain pans and all the rest of this, let alone the orderly universe that surrounds us. I can't give you a Bible answer for how starlight works because the Bible doesn't address the topic. Like many other topics, scientific and otherwise, that are touched on briefly in the Bible, we're called upon to accept these things by faith. But if God is powerful enough to create the world, I'm prepared to believe that he is honest enough to tell us how he did it. This is what I've been playing. I have this thing about space-themed games. I don't know what it is exactly. Maybe it's the blackboards. Maybe I just don't like boring artwork. But there are very few games set in outer space that I enjoy. Clank in Space is a good game, though. I, I do like Clank in Space. Clank in Space is a space-themed version of Clank. You're not going to be surprised at that, probably. And Clank and Clank in Space both are essentially dungeon crawls. And if you're not acquainted with what a dungeon crawl is, let me explain it. A dungeon crawl is where you go down into a cellar or a cave, or in this case, a foreign planet. 
and your job is to get as much stuff as you possibly can and not die. So you're picking up gems and health points or whatever form the treasure may take in that particular game. Always with the idea of getting out. Because as you can imagine, you can collect all the treasure that you want in any kind of dungeon that you want to collect it in. And if you don't get out, then you lose the game. Clank in Space is very much like that. Collect all the treasure you want to collect, but if you don't get on the escape pod in time, you have no opportunity to win the game. And the end can come relatively quickly. You may be in the deepest bowels of the game board and suddenly realize you have three turns to get out and you have absolutely no chance of doing that. Once someone escapes the dungeon, once somebody decides, you know what, I'm going to end the game now. The clock starts ticking and there is no stopping it. And in the end, no matter how much treasure you may have collected, it's all going to go for naught if you don't get home. Now, you can probably tell where I'm going with this. In fact, I'll be surprised and disappointed if you don't. We are here on Earth for a temporary period of time. We don't know exactly how long. And while we're here, we are very busy about the task of maximizing our pleasure, maximizing our experience, doing the best we can with what we have with however much time we have. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of that. But if you play the game of life like I play Clank in Space, you can get so caught up in doing the things that you do, in exploring one more crevice, in going down one more blind alley, that before too long you forget what this is all about. This is not about collecting stuff. This is about winning the game. And you don't win the game unless you get out. I greatly fear, and I've said so many, many times, probably even on this podcast, that some of my brothers and sisters in Christ have become so worldly, so caught up in the things of this planet, that they've forgotten where their home is. For more than three years now, I have proclaimed myself to be the citizen of heaven, and I hope that you call yourself the same. Philippians 3 verse 20, this is where our citizenship is. We may be on earth, but we do not belong on earth. And ultimately, nothing we do here on earth is of any consequence, especially if we don't get out. You can make your prison cell as comfortable as you want it to be. You can make your view better and your pillow fluffier and your bed softer and your neighbors quieter and your guards kinder. You may meet with a great deal of success. You may wind up having the most fulfilling and satisfying life anyone has ever had here on planet Earth. But if in so doing you forget who you are, then it's all a waste. This is not about maximizing our experience on Earth. This is about going home. Whatever objective you may set for yourself here on this Earth, and again, we're not suggesting such things are bad things, but if fear God and keep His commandments is not at the very top of that objective list, as we read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, then we are wasting our time here. If you are so caught up in the things of this life that you have forgotten about going home, I strongly urge you to recalibrate, to remember who you are, remember where you're going. You will have opportunities to exploit this life for pleasure, for satisfaction, for ego, for all of the above. But if you lose sight of heaven, it will cost you the only thing that matters. Do not fall victim to this worldly view 
of this physical life. Spend your three score and 10 or four score years having whatever impact you can have. Certainly gathering up good experiences, good relationships, but do not lose sight of what this is all about. We are going home one day. Never forget that. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.